Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and also a proud member. Today's June 5th, you're with a virtual City Club forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They're our public media partner. We're grateful for their support and partnership. It feels this week as if the country and the world are on fire and perhaps also at a tipping point when it comes to confronting racism, police brutality, and white supremacy. This chapter in our nation's history began when George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis. And yesterday, the Reverend Al Sharpton delivered a eulogy for Floyd. There's a little of what he said. What happened to Floyd happens every day in this country, in education and health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. So this is what we're discussing today. This moment, what it means, and what we are all called on to understand and to do. We have two local leaders with us to talk about what they are doing next and whether or not we as a city and a community are finally ready for all of us to confront racism. Now, before I introduce our speakers, I want to thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support our virtual forums. You can see a full list at cityclub.org thank you. You can also join them in supporting our work by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. And our forum today is sponsored specifically by Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland, and it's also part of our Local Heroes series, which is sponsored by Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy. We deeply appreciate the support of all of those organizations for City Club programming. Now to our speakers, Mordecai Cargill is co-founder and partner at Third Space Action Lab and Third Space Cafe, a grassroots research strategy and design cooperative dedicated to prototyping creative place-based solutions to complex socioeconomic problems. He previously served as Director of Strategy, Research, and Impact at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. Mordecai Cargill earned his B.A. in African-American Studies at Yale with a concentration on black culture in the 20th century. Also with us at our Friday Forum, Danielle Sidnor, founder and CEO of We Win Strategies Group and president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. Throughout her career, she's worked in finance and as the executive director of the Economic and Community Development Institute. She was elected president of the Cleveland NAACP in February 2019 and she's focused on turning conversations about inclusion and equity in the city to action. She earned her bachelor's degree in finance from the University of Phoenix. Now, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That number again is 330-541-5794 to text your questions. If you're on Twitter, tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work them in. Mordecai Cargill and Danielle Sidnor, thank you so much for being a part of our Friday Forum today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're grateful to both of you. Um, and this week has been one of the heaviest in American history and in recent memory. And I want to start by asking you both, uh, Danielle, first, how are you? Uh, how are you doing as a leader in this community right now? Dan, so first I want to just say thank you for the opportunity and for you know you continuing to use this platform uh, to ensure that the voices of local leaders are elevated and heard and that the community has a chance to connect with us. 
in terms of how I'm doing, unfortunately, while it's heavy for many people, we've had very similar heaviness in the black community with the death of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile. And this is very reminiscent to me of the feelings that I had then. The, the biggest difference this time is that I feel like more of my white friends and colleagues are have a heightened sensitivity and awareness to what's going on. Sunday was a rough day for me. I, I think I, I pressed through over the weekend and when you're in the thick of it, that adrenaline that keeps you going. But Sunday, the reality that I'm raising two black sons myself hit home very, very hard when I heard the words that um, George Floyd ca called out for his mother who is deceased. And just imagining a time when my sons could be adults and be reaching out for me to protect and to save them and me not be able to be there to do that, that really struck a chord with me. And it's, it's it lit a fire um, even hotter than I already was to make sure that we work on solutions and permanent solutions for the injustices that we continue to face in society. Danielle Sidnor, as I said, is the president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. Mordecai Cargill is a leader in our community. How are you holding up? Um, I'm, I, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. You know, I, I feel quite honored to be able to address the city club audience, um, in basketball shorts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, seriously, um, I'm really grateful for that, for the opportunity to be in conversation with, uh, with both of you. Um, and, and really that's been how I've been, uh, trying to make sense of this moment. I've been trying to uh, stay grounded and to try to find some center um, and allow myself to really be present and to feel this moment. Um, it's all so, so incredibly complicated um, and um, it's beyond headlines. It's, right, it's like there are people who are putting their lives at risk um, to advocate for their freedom. There are people who are, um, you know, issuing a plea to the world and to their uh, their fellow citizens that their lives matter, but it's a plea that you know is is really it comes as a question, right? It's like a it, it's it's more than um, just a statement about something that's true, right? And I feel like that is the the most difficult thing to reckon with right now is that you know this is a unbroken link of of death that goes back to 1619, you know? And so just trying to process it all and, and still stay hopeful that, you know, that there's a better day coming. Let's hope. Danielle Sidnor, picking up on what Mordecai Cargill just said, the, that this is a, a, a chain that goes back to 1619 when African slaves were first brought to the shores of the United, what was then colonies, right, in North America. Um, can, there are people in the listening audience who may not see that connection, who may not fully understand uh, those, the, the way those, those dots are connected. Help us, help us out. Mm -hmm. So Dan, I think it's actually very interesting that um, we attempt some... Got a little... I'm not sure we can hear you right now. Hold on a second. Mordecai, I'm going to let you jump in. Okay. Um, but can help us connect those dots. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the, you know, the the complexity of racism, the 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 really tricky thing about it is that it's it's both super complicated and also really really simple. 
you know it's a it's it's infinitely complex in like how it works how it's working on all of us all the time right um it's not just people saying bigoted racist things it's not just um one police officer killing um an unarmed black kid um it's really about the patterns it's about trends it's about the outcomes and so as we, as we think about what um what racism means um I'm, I'm urging, my, my comrades are urging us to, to really pan out, to, to think more critically um, about how our society is structured, who is, is constantly on the social media stream being, being victimized, right? And, and, and ask some more difficult questions like, are, are we okay with the fact that black people can get killed doing just about anything. You could be like going for a jog. You could be waiting for your mom to come home from, from work. You could just be like bird watching and almost lose your life, you know? And so it, that, the, 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 the challenge in, in trying to explain it is that there, it's, there's so much, so much information accessible um, about what it means. You know, there's, there's so, there's a history of, of academic scholarship that is like, trying to, to drive this point home. But we, we have an opportunity to, um, to really lean into this discomfort that we feel and try to understand like, with as much um, honesty as possible um, the, the, the multiple dimensions of, of racism. Uh, Danielle Sidnor, and I, I'm, I'm getting conflicting messages that you're, uh, are you connected right now? I'm here. Can you, you hear are. me? Yes, we can I'm hear here. you. Fantastic. Um, All right. <laughs> you were you were going to uh, answer the question before about connecting, and I apologize. I had a really for that. deep, really deep thought. Yeah, do you, I hope you still have it. Go. <laughs> I, um, but so I'm going to even give this framing as I sit in Glenville that is redlined um, with internet access, and even our attempt to try and connect and do this today. And I know my brother Mordecai is in Glenville as well. And his face is even a little bit blurry, and it's not because neither one of us are paying for cell phone service or internet service, but it's also the quality of the product that gets delivered in our communities. But we can talk about that a little further. But to your point about how this connects back to 1619, I think we have a nostalgic view of how this country was formed and the ideals that it was formed on. But the reality is we have been looting black bodies and native bodies since the inception of you know, the United States of America. And, and there's no way that we can talk about modern day events without going all the way back and linking to how we really began and how we uh, grew and uh, were able to develop the wealth that we have in this country. And so you cannot talk about current day disparity without talking about the foundation of, you know, how we got here. And so I believe it's very important for the listeners to be able to take the time and the willingness, and that's the other part, Dan, is that it's not that the information mm -hmm. is not out mm -hmm. there, but mm -hmm. the, the willingness to own the fact that it's not you per se who enslaved anybody, mm -hmm. but the history of this country that created a platform where black bodies were transactions and that they were, you know, um, exchanged for goods and services mm -hmm. that creates the modern day belief that we are a subhuman, that we are less than, that it's easy to look at us as property and the same frustration that people have about a broken window, they don't have the same level of frustration about a man who laid in the street for almost nine minutes until he died. And so we get enraged, 
we we have more people crying out for help because buildings have been broken down and some people still have not said a single word about the fact that people are frustrated and mad about death and and that's the the challenge of us not being able to connect those two as one thing danielle sidnor as i mentioned before is president of the cleveland branch of the naacp Mordecai Cargill, with a partner with Third Space Action Lab, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with Third Space Action Lab, they have done uh, an incredible amount of work in greater Cleveland to raise awareness around racial issues mm -hmm. of racial inequities um, that are both historic and current and contemporary. Um, in terms of this, both of you have outlined very, very well where we are, what this moment means, and... Um, there are people who have seen the protests, people who have participated in the protests, and um, who, who may not know exactly what's the agenda. When we seek change, what are the concrete things that we can begin to work towards? What do you see, what do you both see individually and together as the agenda for the, what is the work ahead? Mm -hmm. uh, Mordecai Cargill, why don't you start? Okay. Um, that, that's a very, uh, very difficult question to, to answer. Um, I, I think that the, 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 the difficulty is that, um, you know, we, my firm and uh, our, our comrades, we've been bringing the, uh, the Racial Equity Institute from Greensboro, North Carolina, to Northeast Ohio to, um, to offer their half-day and two-day uh, workshops. Um, and at this point, more than 5,200 people um, locally, um, almost 900 organizations um, throughout our region, um, people who have come from places as far as Spain, people who have come from, you know, uh, just down the road in Youngstown, um, to get a, like, foundational understanding of what's at stake if we, if we don't really honestly confront um, the history and the, the persistence of, of structural racism. And the challenge is, is that even if you're confronted with the history, even if you look at the, the numbers, if you understand like the kind of the, the fundamental observations about racism that REI is trying to lay out, um, people are still kind of at a loss for what to do. Um, and in fact, Third Space Action Lab was really um, created to come up with some radical ideas about what to do. Um, and we describe ourselves, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek as uh, McKinsey and Parliament Funkadelic have a soulful black baby, or say, uh, <laughs> a soulful biracial baby um, now. Um, <clears throat> but it's because, you know, we've been working with stakeholders whose, whose work is actually part of the solution. You know, we started in community development, and we were working with like this vast network of uh, you know community-based organizations who are really you know they're, they're trying to to come up with some interventions for problems that are are really um, kind of out of their control, right? People are trying to uh, address hot, like market failures, and what we were trying to um, urge people to do is like if you're if you're thinking about how do you invest in a predominantly black neighborhood? There are certain um, contextual um, insights or observations that, that you have to make 
You have to refine your tools and refine your frameworks and really rethink how you, uh, you know, stimulate market activity in a way that doesn't put people at risk. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting um, in, a, in a very interesting place right now. I mean, not just because our office looks cool, but because I'm, lo I'm looking out the window at Park Place Village. You know, it's a, it is a, it's a private affordable housing um, complex or something. Um, and uh, directly across the street from us are $500,000 uh, single family houses, you know, right on 105. And so when we, when we start to talk about solutions, I think it's, it's difficult to prescribe concrete ones because that work is a bit of an art and a bit of a science, right? It, it takes some innate sense of like what is possible and an imagination to see what, what could be um, achieved in places that people typically ignore. Um, but also like there are like tactical things that people who do community development, economic development have been trained to do that with an awareness of the, the specific context in which they're trying to pursue solutions, they could refine, right? So, that's, that's a short answer, or maybe it's a long answer. But It's a great answer, <laughs> Mordecai. You. I want to take a moment to yeah. recognize and just circle back to and underline something that you said, that 5,200 people have gone through Racial Equity Institute training, whether the three-hour, the, the three half-day groundwater mm -hmm. training or the full mm -hmm. two-day training. Mm -hmm. And for people who, who are interested in beginning to understand mm -hmm. what the community is talking about when the community uses words like racial equity and white supremacy yeah. and explaining the historical context. Mm -hmm. The Third Space Action Lab offers these trainings and they are open to everybody and there are scholarships mm -hmm. available. And uh, you can find out more information when you look up Third Space Action Lab on the web or you know we've got a link um, on our website at cityclub.org. I feel like this is really important and that is an extraordinary achievement, 5,200 people having gone through that training. Um, and it is the beginning of a journey for a lot of people. Danielle Sidnor, uh, the, I suspect that the NAACP has some very specific policy items on its advocacy agenda, and I would like to give you a chance to speak to those. Absolutely, Dan. There, there is um, one thing that I would connect to that Mordecai said just about when, when we look at ideas and solutions, and this also feeds into policy, uh, it is not that we have never had programs that worked. I, I, I can't move forward without kind of bringing into the conversation the fact that over this past weekend, so the May 1st through June, uh, May 31st through June the 1st, was also the um, same time that in 1921, a mob of white re residents essentially attacked and burned down Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was called Black Wall Street. And so the fact that we're in 2020 and we're having another type of civil unrest and we're trying to come up with ideas and strategies for how we advance the black community, one of the things that we have to grapple with in history is that we've had periods of advancement. And as we advance and we have our own, oftentimes the power structures that be uh, are not excited when they see that we've been able to advance. And so one of the things that we have to grapple with as we move forward and look at policy, legislation, and even new ideas on how we advance the community, we have to ask our white leaders how they reckon with 
potential loss of individual power because no one gives up power freely, power is taken. And that is a very uncomfortable position to be in when we're talking about looking at policies that say, we begin as a community to start giving direction and guidance to police unions, to leaders that are responsible for these departments and say, these are the things as a community that we mandate. If you are going to have a police force, your police force must do these different things. And so a couple of the tactics that we are currently um, advocating for is number one, a ban of all knee and chokehold type activities. Some of the things that we're asking for, and I have these conversations with local leaders, they're like, well, this is just common sense kind of stuff. And we realize it's common sense, but it's still a shifting of power. If individuals at the local, at every police local level are able to determine for themselves what they think is acceptable, and now someone else is able to come in and tell you you can or you can't do something, that's loss of power. And again, like I said, people don't give up power freely, so we're going to have to work at it. The second thing is to be able to look at, at minimum, six levels of um, de-escalation on the use of force scale. There are some situations that we see that go from nothing to escalated within seconds. Like in the case of Tamir Rice, you had a scenario where immediately upon arriving on the scene, before most of us could have even logically thought through how to react, you know, Tamir was taken from us. And so we need to be able to have those things put in place. Third would be that all police departments, when you open records requests, we should be able to see disciplinary history. Someone should not be able to do the things that we have witnessed and then just move on to another police force. But that has to be something that we look at getting our legislators to do on a federal level and then also, you know, statewide. I think we, we also want to have all police departments should have citizen review boards that have subpoena authority, where it's not just making recommendations and hoping and praying that somebody decides to act on them. And we need better screening and interviewing processes. There are tools that we can put in place to help to root out people that are likely to cause harm. Again, the dollars that come out of these settlements come from taxpayers. So we have a vested interest in helping our police forces become better so that way citizens can be safe and the police officers can do what they're required to do, which is protect and serve, not hunt down and kill people. Danielle Sidnor, as I said, is the uh, president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. Mordecai Cargill is with us as well from Third Space Action Lab. If you have a question for them, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 to text your question. Or if you would are on Twitter, you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it in in the second half of the program. Mordecai Cargill, um, speaking about police reform, people who are paying close attention to the protests will have heard calls for going even further, for defunding the police or abolishing the police. Um, what is, when people are talking about those kinds of radical policies, what happens on the other side in terms of public safety? What is the, what's, what's, what's the agenda there? Yeah. Um, so... I, again, I, I would say that uh, we, it, it starts with like how, how we're thinking about the problem, right? Like the, it, it's interesting as we talk and as we are sitting here reflecting on uh, my people have taken to the streets, um, it's, it's kind of a convergence of these two like crises, right? It, it was the, the COVID-19 global health pandemic and then it's this moral crisis, right? a, 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 a need for um, a, a real revolution of, of values 
and um, you know human connection. Um, but really, uh, when we think about what's what's really at the root of um, safety, right? Like why, what makes people feel safe? It's it's really it has to go beyond the police, right? It has to be has to go beyond um, you know these crisis moments. It's like it's almost like if, if we were to just say we want to make sure that community development and economic development is in like good schools and all those things, the things that like make people decide where to live. If we were to say like we just want to make sure that in this part of the city that these these kids have the the same access to all those fundamental elements of a like thriving community. In, the, in that case, if people had, had more opportunities to, um, you know, to thrive without you know, uh, institutional support or without like, the, the risk of, of having to um, hustle just to make it, you know, I think there would be a, less of a need for police in the first place. But when we talk about rebuilding institutions, um, that's where the the vision has to come in, you know. It's there were there were uh, there was a time when um, you know some things that we thought were impossible, like slavery, um, were was it seemed like a permanent thing. So um, institutions can change, institutions can evolve, and I think that it's the perfect time for for us to have. Um, you know, more difficult conversations, but also to, to liberate our, our imaginations. Danielle Sidnor, one of the pieces of the conversation, the broader conversation happening in our community and across the country right now is about the difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist. Uh, Marlon James, who uh, is the Annisfield Wolf Award-winning author, spoke at the City Club a number of years ago, and he said, he said that, that non-racism is sort of like this moral passivity. I'm not a racist. I didn't do it. It's not my fault. Whereas anti-racism is really about standing up to fight against an injustice. Um, and I, I wonder if you, I, I'd like to ask you to speak to it a little bit as well. Yeah, Dan, you know, I think um, non-racist and anti-racism is essentially like do you have courage or not? Because to me, courage is not the lack of fear, but it's action even in the face of fear. And so there are times and situations where individuals feel like, to I think some things that Mordecai said earlier about racism is sometimes we try and confine it to, do I say racial slurs or not? And if I don't ever say a racial slur, that means I'm not a racist. However, if you help to um, stand up institutions and systems that are inherently racist, you're, you're participating in what racism is. And so uh, many people know I recently left an organization that I was working at, and one of, the, one of the impetuses for that is how I was treated within that organization, and even being told by the CEO that I was aggressive and condescending. And that's the label that black women always get, is you're an aggressive black woman. But in traditional society, a person with my personality type would be praised and called a leader. It happened to Michelle Obama. She was uh, very eloquently spoke, had a serious face, had a strong demeanor, and they had to tell her on the campaign, you're hurting the president because 
people think you're aggressive. And so when we have these conversations about racism and anti-racism, it is, do you have leaders, especially with organizations who espouse that they're out to help the black community? We have lots of people who lead community development organizations, foundations, nonprofits that profit off of black uh, poverty and that profit off of low to moderate income individuals and praise themselves for going out and helping LMI communities. But within their organizations and institutions, they do not praise and support black people. And so what we have to be able to do is call those people out. We have to hold them accountable. We have to provide them with resources, but they have to be willing to have the courage to do the hard work, look introspectively and say, maybe I do not say racial slurs, but how many people have I promoted? How many people have I supported? How many people have I praised publicly? Um, how many times have I, have I witnessed somebody being less than pleasant and checked them and said, you know what? you really didn't handle that situation well. And that's what it's going to take when we talk about anti-racism versus being a racist. They are very different things. And it takes a lot more work to be anti-racist than it simply does to say, I'm not racist. Mordecai Cargill. Yeah. I mean, what I would add to that is, um, you know, we, we uh, at Third Space, we, we call it the impact continuum, which, it, it was kind of a bit of a joke with um, when we were getting the question. So, so what do I do? Um, I've just got. I spent two days getting my my world rocked. You know, I I learned all these things about what my ancestors did. I feel really guilty and all this stuff. And we were like, okay, well, um, one, you should you should read. You should read more books. You should you know go on Google, figure out like you know um, what parts of this training you you need to. Uh, refresh but really this this continuum is about more is about constant awareness building and more thoughtful action and it's not a process it's like a it's a mindset it's like a it's a it's it's instincts right it's like and it, it's also um a reminder that if these things have been designed like if you look at a um a redlining map somebody drew that redlining map and there were many people who approved it. And the, the, the impacts of those decisions are still with us. So if we can think about it as a design problem, as something that um, is concrete enough for us to, to think, okay, how, do I, how might I, I redraw this map in ways that um, you know, enable more resources to flow into this community as a starting point? You know? Um, I, I think that's, that, that is part of the solution. But there are, there are really three things that I think you know, anybody could do. Well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm specifically talking about white people who are asking like, okay, so what do I do right now? Um, and, and these three things don't cost a dime, right? One is just get more proximate to the problem, like go to where the problem is, ask more like, you know, stupid questions, but don't ask it to black people all the time, right? But like, just get closer to it so you understand in a visceral way what this challenge looks like. Um, again, be really critical about the questions that you're asking rather than what should I do? How about like, what if we do this? I've been thinking about this problem. What if we do this? And then lastly, just like, Liberate your, your mind, you know, and your behind will follow, you know, bring it back to, to P-Funk. And uh, I, I think that, that those three elements are part of how we, we move forward together and just imagine a world that 
is safe for everybody. I want that bumper sticker. Liberate your mind and your behind will follow. The other two were get cri be critical about the questions you're asking and yeah. get proximate, which um, which right I think on. reminds us all of Brian Stevenson's Just Absolutely. Mercy uh, was one of his mm -hmm. calls to action. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have questions for Mordecai Cargill of Third Space Action Lab, which has been responsible for providing racial equity training to more than 5,000 people across greater Cleveland, or Danielle Sidnor, uh, president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP, please text your question to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. Danielle, there's a, a request to ask you to speak a little bit more about digital redlining. Our, our listener writes, it is a current racial disparity in Cleveland that must be addressed. People of color do need reliable, low-cost internet access for job opportunities, distance learning in the time of COVID, health information, and more. Yeah, Dan, so I think that when we have these conversations about um, internet access and, and digital access and things, I think it's twofold. One, when we talk about problems and, and trying to come up with remedies in the black, solution, uh, black community, we often come to them with a charitable mentality. And charity always has a limited and scarce amount of resources. Like I have $100,000 to spread across a thing, and that's all the resources I have. However, I believe that there's a business case in addition to a moral imperative for us to do the things that we do. We saw very quickly many institutions, AT&T, Spectrum, Verizon, that you know very quickly said, oh, because of this pandemic, I can find a way to give everybody internet access. Well, imagine if 10 years ago, every kid in the city of Cleveland had a device and internet access. As we talk about trying to move this region forward, we would be in a much stronger position if every child 10 years ago had internet access and a device. And the business case for that is Verizon. If all of these kids don't advance and turn into citizens that have disable income, guess what? They're never gonna be your customer. They'll be customers of Quicket Wireless or whoever they can afford. And so to me, being a person with a finance background, when I'm trying to gain market share, you spare no expense. You look at the size of the market, you say, what's my addressable market? Uber and all of these other companies go for years without being profitable because they believe once I hook you as a customer, long term, downstream, I work towards profitability. And so I believe we have to stop thinking about these problems as charity and understand how there is a moral and business imperative to do this. It does stem from racism, the fact that we have redlined. And if we look at, you know, AT&T specifically, a few years ago, there was a map that showed that individuals who were on uh, government benefits should be able to access this high speed Internet service that they had. Well, nobody had the high enough quality speed to be able to get the free service, and it was people in Cleveland. But Bratnall, which is right next door, had the, had the speed. So did you go around Cleveland to get to Bratnall to give them internet? I mean, to Mordecai's point, these maps and things were, were drawn a specific way. And so I just feel like in life, you cannot change a thing unless you call it out and unless you identify it. And so all of the organizations that I just mentioned Let's have a meeting and talk about what you can do to make these permanent things, not just reactions to a pandemic. These kids need internet and it shouldn't go away once we go back into our normal school buildings. When we spoke with Eric Gordon of the Cleveland Metro Schools about this, um, he pointed out that Cleveland is fourth worst in the nation among similar, similarly sized cities when it comes to the digital divide. And that was a really important piece of context, I think. People 
may assume that it's just a problem all across America, but in fact, many other cities have figured out solutions and have implemented those solutions. Um, Mordecai Cargill, could you speak to the role of voting? Uh, this question came up that how do we convey to protesters and those outraged? I can't imagine that there's anybody not outraged, but that those outraged that they need to vote to make real policy changes. I think people are so emotional, I'm not sure they believe change can happen. Do we think real racial change can happen with today's administration? I'm not sure if that's a, a question about federal, state, mm -hmm. or local administration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, this question about does voting actually matter right now? Stacey Abrams mm -hmm. uh, wrote a very powerful opinion piece in the New York Times uh, a couple mm -hmm. of yesterday, I believe, saying, you know, please vote. I know you don't. I know you feel it's inadequate, but hear me out. Yeah. And she made the yeah. case. But could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think that um, voting is is one one part of a, a solution um, but it it sometimes it feels like a tough ask you know and i have have uh you know comrades um, at cleveland votes in particular um who are are really um they're, they're doing the lord's work trying to get people to care about what's happening you know like to 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 see voting as a viable way of like um, protecting your rights, you know? And there, there's these, there's, there are constant threats to um, democracy, but it feels a, a bit abstract for a lot of people, you know? Um, and, and, I, and I think that the, the, uh, the difficulty in that, in that in, or in the question itself is that um, beyond voting, we, we need people to, to feel more um, connected, to feel like they have a greater sense of ownership over the places that they live, that they feel that um, not only voting is part of it, but like I could also run for office. I, this is my hood, and I want to be the, the council person here. You know? So I, I think if, if voting is like a hook, then great. But what is really really dope about what Cleveland Votes does is like they, they think about it more holistically. They think about a more equitable vision for democracy. They think about what type of political consciousness raising is necessary to make more informed citizens in the places that are often most impacted by these policy decisions, you know. So um, I'll vote, but I'm also, <laughs> and it feels quite urgent, um, I must say. Um, but the other thing is that uh, the difficulty is like, who are you, who are you voting for? And, and like, do they really understand my experience? And so I would say that we should exhaust all, all you, know, you know, useful means to try to apply pressure. There's the um, direct action, but the, the ballot box is, has liberated people. So, yeah. Danielle said no more to add about voting. Yeah, I really, really, really want people to be able to try and connect the dots between what we see happening across the country in the streets and how we have permanent um, action around these activities. Because any, any protest and any movement, generally legislation came behind it that we still see you know, in effect today. And so I don't believe that we would have the progress that we have had if we didn't have protests. And I would even go as far as to say the riots, while I don't advocate for us to burn down buildings, 
if I stand in the street by myself and I don't do not, not doing anything with just a single sign, I'm unlikely to get a lot of media attention. If the house next to me is on fire, there's a lot of attention. And so it's unfortunate that that sometimes is the reaction to, you know, what gets broadcast and what gets attention. And then also there's a certain level of urgency when you get to the point where you realize people are this frustrated that they're not going home. They're taking over buildings. They're sitting in the street. They're sitting outside. And so I think history tells us that it has been the combination of protest and the combination of voting and legislation. So we need people to Mordecai's point to be able and be willing to run for office because right now, I think across this country, you have a lot of people who are looking at candidate selections and saying, I'm not necessarily energized, you know, by anybody. And I think for a lot of younger voters as well, especially those that, you know, supported President Obama, you had someone who had a message of hope, who had a message of inspiration, who just by being the who he was as a black man was something that was history making in itself. And then to have the follow on politicians that have come behind him, I think there are a number of people who are just you know disenchanted with what the state of politics are. However, we still do have to vote and being able to help young protesters especially say, if you want the things that you're demanding to become permanent policies, you must be registered to vote you must go out and vote and you must complete your census to make sure that your state gets the amount of representation required based on its population. I want to ask you both a question that um, came uh, from the community uh, prior, a couple of days ago, actually, when we first announced this program. An African-American leader in our community uh, texted me and said, why are you asking two black leaders if they're ready to confront racism? Why aren't you asking white leaders? And uh, it was a great question, led to a great phone call. Um, and I wanted to ask you, did we get it wrong? People watching the live stream may not actually, or on the radio may not actually be able to see Mordecai laughing right now, but. Yeah, our faces. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so are we finally, are we, the, 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 we the we is the interesting part of right. that, right? part like who is the we that we're talking about right because We've obviously you, obviously um, and you, two of you are confronting racism every day of your lives yeah. and i've only been black for 29 years right like you know? <laughs> yeah. i got you beat mordecai but no so i i think that the um the title is somewhat provocative dan and, and it helps to get people to click and want to watch and so a part of when I read it, that's a bit of what I assumed, is that we, we need to get people to understand that we're about to have some dialogue that may be uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's not shrouded in the pleasantries of discussing race in America, right? You, you, you made it a little bit more provocative. However, I do think that similar to some things that I've said after the protest is you've seen um, prominent individuals. I'm just going to talk about Atlanta, Killer Mike. Uh, the rapper T.I., the Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor, black people that have come out and said, listen, I need you all to go home. We can't tear down our own house. But I'm not seeing locally the calls from white leaders saying, I know that there were kids from Hudson and Solon and Brook Park and Pepper Pike and uh, places that are not adjacent to the city that came and used bats and busted out windows and people that came from neighboring counties. And I need the white leaders to step up and say, don't do that. 
You cannot come to a protest and say Black Lives Matter and say you're standing in solidarity with us and then bust out a window. And then, you know, I had a conversation with a local reporter because there was a report that 99 people were arrested and the majority were in the city, were people that were from the city of Cleveland. But many of the rest, arrest happened at 79th and Euclid at a villa that was looted. Well, there was a whole protest downtown. There were all kinds of buildings that were burned and vandalized. And most of the arrests happened at 79th and Euclid. So we only will, uh, only people who get arrested are the people that the police actually arrest. It doesn't mean that was the only people who were perpetuating the violence. And so again, in the disparity of who gets the punishment and then who all actually perpetuated the actions, we continue to see that. So we need everybody to stand with us in this moment and say, I have a personal responsibility and obligation to use my voice to hold my community accountable as well, whoever your community is. And I would also add to that, that you could do this, the same conversation again with white leaders. And I think it, I would tune in for that and it would be quite interesting. Um, and I, I think that there are a lot of people, um, you know, amongst that more than 5,200 who have had enough exposure to, um, you know, the concepts that are necessary to have a, um, you know, a sophisticated conversation about race. Um, but I, I would really hope that the conversation could go deeper, could be more textured, you know, because uh, it's so personal for uh, for me and Danielle, you know, like I we describe our work as soul work because it's it's not just like something that we do from from nine to five. It's like I'm gonna be black at six thirty, and I'm gonna have some thoughts about like how I could improve Glenville on my way from the from the office back to my house, you know. Mordecai Cargill, black at 630. Mordecai, this question, um, what expectations do you have for business leaders? Cultural change that takes root in business settings impacts the health of our community. So what would, what's one thing that uh, both of you would ask business leaders to do or do more of? Mordecai, start with you. I would say um, focus on what you do really well and try to figure out how you could support a black business doing the same thing. Danielle Sednor. Yeah, I, you know, I, I would say, um, look at the practices within your organization. You know, we think about all of the work that we do, you have to start at home. And so if you're an organization and that's your primary focus is to help and serve the community and you don't have diversity in your organization and not just diversity in name only, but do they have control of balance sheets? Do they hire and fire? Do they have P&Ls where they get to spend money and make decisions on where investment out of your organization goes into communities, into other businesses? You know, th that's real um, diversity is when you have people that have the ability to make independent decisions. And so if you're not doing that, you have some work to do. It's a very interesting question here. How can I use my investments to help? I would be interested in supporting black communities and companies with my 401k funds. Danielle Sidnor. So I think that there's a couple of things that you can do um, with 401k dollars. You, you look at um, the NAACP has um, an exchange that we have licensed the use of our name, but really it's an index to be able to measure whether or not organizations are making and have real commitments to diversity and inclusion. And so um, 
that's a, a great index to be able to look at, you know, companies that are listed on that index. That means that they have um, been tested, we've looked at them, they've been graded, and they're making commitments based on the number of people that are on their board, their senior level leadership, their supplier diversity chains. It's harder when you talk about using your personal 401k to invest in local businesses. As a previous financial advisor, I tell you, you want to have diversity in your investments. And so if you're using your retirement savings and putting it into a 401k, think about dollars that you have outside of a 401k. What are you doing with your day-to-day -day spending? When's the last time you bought an item from a Black-owned business? When's the last time you've promoted a Black-owned business? And I know I've had people reach out to me over the last week or so saying, do you know Black-owned? businesses and I think we have to stop some of that as well and ask your network um, be able to sometimes do the grunt work yourself to find out and not just rely on your black friends to tell you about the black businesses in the community there is a resource in our community the real black Friday um, that I would direct listeners to as well and you can you know just google that Absolutely. and another place for probably non 401k investment dollars I would suggest is growth opportunity partners which is not a bank, but a lending institution that focuses on providing coaching and access to capital for minority businesses, minority-owned businesses. That's run, full disclosure, by City Club member Michael Jeans. So, uh, next question. Um, the, uh, this was a question for me, actually, from uh, your colleagues at, at Third Space Action Lab, Mordecai, if I would share my experience in REI training and how it evolved my thinking and work. And I would say a couple of things to that, which is um, one, that one of the most amazing things to me was being a part of a cohort of people going through that transformation together and witnessing actually the really different levels at which people were experiencing the, um, experiencing the sort of new understanding of our shared narrative. The other thing is that it um, it got me a lot more comfortable with the discomfort of all of this. And I think you've both alluded to how important that is, to be comfortable with the discomfort and being able to to talk about concepts and uh, realities like white supremacy um, without sort of getting triggered um, and just being able to, and getting defensive, right? Being able to have those those important conversations and, and just recognize that that while as a white man, the I have a responsibility. I, I'm not responsible for what has happened, but I am responsible for what is happening, and that there is a status quo that I'm either comfortable with or I'm not, and I'm either you know seeking to change it or I'm not. But both are choices. And I would say that's. I probably have more to say about this, mm -hmm. and uh, but I'm going to stop there because this is about <laughs> you guys, not me. Um, this question, do you believe the city declaring racism a public health crisis will have a meaningful impact or is it merely symbolic? Why or why not? And how significant an issue should addressing racism be in the next mayoral election, which is coming up in 2021? Danielle Sidnor. Yes, I'll start. I mean, I was a part of the group and actually um, at two o'clock we have a press conference coming up uh, to discuss the topic again. And uh, Blaine Griffin, who yesterday was on with you as well, who was very instrumental in kind of helping push that across the finish line. All of the things that we're going to do would only be in name only if the community sits by and allows that to be. Declaring racism as a public health crisis is one step, it's one piece in a larger puzzle 
of reform and a larger puzzle of action. And so one of the things that I try and stress people all the time when they ask me even like, what does the NAACP do? Well, we're only as strong as our members. And I will say the same for that declaring racism as a public health crisis. If the community doesn't activate that declaration through all parts of our community, through the business community, through philanthropy, through government, um, through individual citizenry, then it will be something that's in name only. But now we do have an obligation and requirement because we've named it a crisis to actually work on solutions. When you name something as a crisis or a pandemic, you have to be able to now be working on creating solutions to rid yourself of that crisis. And so for those that are asking that question, I just ask, what, are, what, what role will you play in getting involved to make sure that it's not something that's name only? It must be paramount, I believe, uh, talking points in this next mayoral election. If you can't talk about race in a city that's supremely segregated, you're not ready to lead. Mordecai Cargo. You know, I, I, I think that it goes back to the value of, of voting. You know, I, I was reflecting on that question um, earlier. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the fact that you have a leader like Blaine Griffin um, proposing something like this, and you have council people like Councilwoman Santana and Councilman Jones, who are representing their their wards and their communities in a way that's like incredibly proximate. But also, um, these are people who have a um, you know a, a deep knowledge and a desire to continue to um, understand and unpack the ways that structural racism are is affecting their constituents and are urging their colleagues to to dig in to go further um, is the you know, is encouraging. And, and the reason why they're there is because the, the, the people of Cleveland voted them in. And so I think that um, with them as examples and um, seeing that, that, you know, that sensitivity is being converted into policy, I think that the bar has been raised for, for the, uh, you know, the, the elected officials in our, in our community. And so I would absolutely anticipate that um, a, real a real conversation about race will have to be a part of the mayoral election. But I'm, I'm again, hopeful that um, it can be more nuanced and can be more critical. And ultimately that we get to a point where it's like, all right, how can, us, how can we as a community deeply engage with structural racism as, a, uh, as an opportunity to create a more connected, a more vibrant, and more inclusive community. Closing this out, um, Danielle, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I wanted to ask you finally, um, at this point, this moment, looking back at the last two weeks and looking ahead to the work ahead, are you feeling optimistic? Dan, I feel, I have to feel optimistic, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to continue doing the work that I do. I, again, I will, I will end on the fact that I have two sons that are 15 and 17. I live in Shaker Heights, and I look at their day-to-day -day experience. We're being in classrooms, and sometimes they're the only black male because they take AP classes. And I live in a city that prides itself in being liberal and being progressive and being diverse. And they still have an experience where in school they really have a segregated experience. So my optimism is in the fact that they're conscious and they're aware and they see what's happening and they don't want me to stop fighting. And so that's what keeps me optimistic is that 
there's enough energy among all of us that somebody fought for us to have the freedoms and the access that we do. And so I have an obligation for the generation that's coming behind me to not be worn down, not to not lose focus, but to keep pushing forward. Danielle Sidnor and Mordecai Cargill, I thank you so much. This has been an extraordinarily useful conversation and we're deeply appreciative to both of you. Right on. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you both. Mordecai Cargill is co-founder and partner at Third Space Action Lab. Danielle Sidnor is the president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. We thank our partners at IdeaStream for helping us present our forum today, which was sponsored by Sisters of Charity Foundation. It's also part of our Local Heroes series, sponsored by Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy. City Club virtual forums have been sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gund Foundation, KeyBank Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, along with many other generous members, sponsors, and donors. You can find on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. Your City Club is committed to our mission of creating conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. If you have other ideas about topics or speakers we should feature, please get in touch. We're going to close it out with a reminder to get proximate and get comfortable with your discomfort. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.